So uh, we did. We just came back from Guatemala, and uh, while I was in Guatemala, I had this awful realization. At first, it wasn't awful. At first, it was just normal realization. But then as I've realized the implications of this realization, I realized I'm in big trouble. And here's my realization. I'm always right. <laughs> right? I don't know if you feel like this in your world, but in my world, I am always right. And it came to a head uh, our very first day of construction in Guatemala. We drive our bus up the hill, like Bix was saying. It was all great. We're singing. Oh! And we get out to find t- tens of thousands of pounds of equipment, I mean, of, of construction material just l- piled in front of this house. I'm like, great. It's piled in front of this house. Our kids are going to work hard. They're going to build this stuff. It's going to be great. Not realizing that that tens of thousands of pounds of, of material had to go a quarter mile up the road um, to where they're actually going to build this thing. And immediately, because I have the spiritual gift of efficiency, I'm like, okay, this is, stop. Let me show you what's going on here. There's no way that one at a time we're going to bring one thing up there. This is going to take all day. We came to build a kitchen. This isn't right. And I thought, well, until we figured it out, let's get all of our kids, all 50 people, hiking this stuff up there. And at least that'll begin to get this thing going on and until we find a truck or something, right? And uh, because I'm the leader of this mission trip and because I want to put on a good face, I couldn't just be like, those dummies, what are they thinking? And I blow them up. I had to do like this self-work really quick in my head, like, hey, we're on a mission trip. We're going to go with the flow, like whatever. And God was really gracious to me, like, hey, dummy, maybe they don't have a truck, hey, dummy, this road doesn't even handle a truck. Like all these things that like God was super gracious where I could begin to pull back and go, okay, God, we're for this week going to move tens of thousands of pounds, one bag at a time up this hill all week. That's what we'll do. But unfortunately, it unpopped the cork for me that I realized I'm right in everything, every single thing. And you probably feel this like when you go and hang out with your friends and their kids are running around wild and you're like, I would let my kids do that, Right? <laughs> Or you're driving down the car, you're driving to church, someone really slowly is driving in front of you, you're like, what a dummy, why are they driving so slowly? And at the same time, someone passes you and you're like, what a dummy, why are they driving so quickly? Right? It never ends. You get in someone's car, they pop in some music, you're like, you like that music? Like every single thing, right? We have these opinions, we are right. And everyone else does not see this, seem to see the world the same way. And it chafes on us a little bit. Um, and here's the worst part. Here's how I know I became so neurotic and I crossed the, I jumped the shark in this one. We're house-sitting this week and uh, Kay's like, all right, we need some more paper towels. How hard would that be? Paper towels. They should obviously be near where the paper, towel dispenser, the paper towel dispenser is. And we're looking over this house all day. Could not find them. Go to the store, buy some, and then we finally find them. Like, what kind of idiots would put paper towels there? Right? They're idiots. In my house, I know where everything goes. Now, I think uh, if we're honest, all of us are the most right people we know. No one loves, lives life going, I love being wrong and being an idiot. No, we're all intentional. We're all smart. We love being right. And the bummer is my version of right kind of chafes up against your version of right, chafes up against your version of right, and then there's, there's some conflict. And, uh, and actually, there's uh, in normal life, whether it's someone who's driving by you on the car or um, where they put the paper towels or even how you move construction material, like that, that's like, okay, whatever. It chafes on us a little bit. But when we do that, when it comes to our walk with God, when we do that in the, in the area of religion, it seems to be incredibly harmful and detrimental to people's lives and to their souls. I mean, it does in normal ways, like, right? When, uh, you know, when you and your lady friends, and I do this because I'm, I'm, internally I'm a lady, but, you know, you go shopping with your girlfriends, you see some mom from your school, and you're like, oh, look what she's wearing. You know, like, you know, you girls do that. You kind of, whoa, right? You're judging them, and it hurts their feelings, but they go, oh, that's just girls. That's how they, they are, you know? But when it comes to religion, it, it 
bears this extra weight that is so crushing. And um, in, in fact, if you ask any young person, what's, you know, what are your view of the church? They go, oh, it's full of judgmental, hypocritical people. And we like to term those terms as self-righteous people. And if you tune out for the rest of the sermon, which you might want to, I might even at some point, um, <laughs> you just need to know, here's the basic deal. We are called, and we're talking about journeys, and these journeys of path that God knows where, because he does know where, and God wants to lead us somewhere. But the, the deal is, how are we going to get there? What are the type of people that we are going to be as we move to wherever God has for us? And uh, God has called us very clearly to be righteous people, to be people who are about the right things. Like, we cannot escape that truth. But in our attempt and our striving to be righteous, we cannot be self-righteous. And if you want to know what self-righteous means, basically self-righteousness in all things, religious things or paper towel things, is simply you judging somebody's worst efforts against your best efforts. Right? All the times, I can always take my best efforts at child raising and put them against your worst efforts, and I am such a better parent all day. Just like you can the same way look at your best efforts at child raising and look at my kids, like, same thing, right? And so we need to realize in our approach with God, as we move towards a relationship with God, as we become more righteous, we must become righteous. That's the call that God has in our lives, but we cannot be self-righteous because it crushes people. It crushes our witness. And, uh, and, and if simply, when we ever have this temptation to be self-righteous, we just need to know all we are doing is taking my best moment in my walk with God and judging it against your worst moment. And that's how we get to be self-righteous. So in order to look at this passage, uh, to look at this topic, uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 to 13. And uh, this is uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And for some reason, it doesn't seem to get a lot of play. It's the calling of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he's a tax collector. And uh, Jesus, uh, he's already called, you know, the bigwigs of, of his disciples. He already called Peter and James and John. He's starting to collect some people. And he's already done a couple miracles. And he comes to this tax booth and has this encounter with Matthew. So here's Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Awesome. Um, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your, your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but to the sinners. And I love this picture because in this picture, I think we have a full picture of the heart of God, of the heart of God for people um, and who God loves, who God runs after, and what he calls his people to be. And so the deal is right at the beginning, we see that all people are invited to follow God. Like, Matthew was a tax collector. And like, we hate taxes and the IRS, and you know, now they're totally jacking people we hear. And so we go, oh, the IRS, we hate those guys. But the tax collectors then were even worse because the deal was Rome needed all this money. They needed to collect taxes. But the way they did it is they couldn't just have Romans everywhere and do that. So they would find some like dirtball who was a Jewish dirtball and say, hey, why don't you tax your people? And you know the people, you know the customs, you know all the ins and outs, you tax them. 
you give us the money and then you can take a share. And so these were basically like, they've turned their back on the Jewish people. And uh, they were just pawn scum to the religious people. And as I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about, I've always put tax collectors and sinners as this category. Like there were people on the outside going, oh, please let me in. But I think when I think of human nature, I don't really think, I think maybe in their heart they were on the outside going, oh, I wish I could be part of the religious people and people would love me. But the more I've thought about it and I think of human nature, they're probably like, Screw the religious people. Who needs those guys? Because when you look at this, Matthew ends up having a party, and you know Matthew's house was awesome because he's a tax collector. He's making a ton of money, and he live in large, and him and his buddies are having this huge party. And so Matthew, in the Jewish people's world, was despised and hated. And I wonder if Matthew and the other tax collectors and sinners really wanted to be part of the Jewish, I mean, part of the religious people or not. But whether they wanted to or not, Jesus' heart was for them. Whether they uh, got that they wanted to be in with the Pharisees and the teachers and the rabbis, or that they just loved having big old awesome parties, totally uh, you know, spending all the Jewish people's money like crazy, um, who really knows? But it was obvious, at least in the religious world, that the tax collectors and sinners were unclean, uncool people that you did not want to be around. In fact, even being in their presence, um, you were unclean, and you had to go through all these purification rites. But we see that Jesus loves all people that Jesus saw Matthew, and despite his social standing, he saw him, and he saw through his external deal, saw his heart, and said, I want you to follow me. And Matthew, at this point, obviously, because he's around, because Jesus has already done some amazing teaching and miracles, Jesus says, follow me, and he says, yes. And he's in, and he goes and follows Jesus. And what I love about Matthew, and why I think this story is so different than any other story, is because the very next thing is not Matthew repenting, turning away, turning around and going, oh, I'm such an awful person, like Zacchaeus, right? He becomes a Christian, turns over all of his money, goes, I'm, I want to make things right. Matthew goes, I'm going to follow Jesus. Great. There's this guy, Jesus. He's totally different, and he ends up throwing this huge party uh, with all of his friends, and Jesus shows up, and all of his religious leaders show up, and the religious leaders look at Matthew, and they're like, I mean, looking at Jesus' disciples, like, why is your teacher eating with these guys? And you think going to a party is no big deal, but in the Jewish custom, having table fellowship, having a meal with someone was identifying with them. It wasn't just being like, hey, we're having dinner. It's a free meal. Like, great. You know how like religious people love going and getting free meals? We love that. Going to people's houses. <laughs> it's part of our job description. Jesus was the, he was the first one that did it. He would go to people's houses and, and mooch, you know, and have great meals. But the deal is, for the, from the religious perspective, they would look at Jesus and go, who you eat with? says who you are and says who you identify with. And Jesus doesn't just go to this party and stand in the back and go, okay, Matthew, you're going to need to clean up your act. Jesus has a meal with them to the point where the religious leaders flip out. And I love this picture of Jesus because Jesus's heart is for everybody. It is for the entire world. And we think, I mean, we get that. Oh, Jesus loves the whole world. But we don't really believe that. Like, we look at people in our world and we're like, that person will never know Jesus. I cannot imagine that person coming and being like Jesus. And really what we're saying is I can't imagine that person kind of becoming like us. Not so much about Jesus, but about us. But everywhere in Scripture, Jesus always ran to people outside the norm. The Samaritan woman, uh, the woman caught in adultery. Um, he did it also with religious leaders and wealthy people, with Joseph of Arimathea and, uh, and Nicodemus. Every single person Jesus had a heart for. And when I thought about what would that look like today, what kind of chafing would that be if, if 
uh, that the Pharisees had towards Jesus. And this is the best I could come up with, and it kind of has been what I've been thinking about because it's in the news. But imagine um, if, if after a church today here, there, uh, so one of my gay friends decided to get married here. And it'd be one thing to come to uh, one of our gay friends' weddings here, you know, because it's legal now. And, but we stand in the back because, oh, Jesus loves them, and we stand in the back. Right? And that's kind of like, okay, we're there, we love them, it's kind of keeping our distance. But what Jesus does by having table fellowship is he identifies with him. It would be the same as if after service today, there's this gay wedding up here, and I come up here, and I'm a groomsman. I may not officiate it, but I'm a groomsman. I'm saying, because groomsman, right, it's like the only place in our culture where we actually identify with somebody else and somebody else's decisions. Other than that, we're so individualistic, we just our hands off like, God bless you. But at least in a wedding, a groomsman says, I am with you. And can you imagine us good Marin County, Marin Covenant folks, if one of our pastors stood up as a groomsman, we're like, oh. I mean, Art would like rip my head off. Probably Jeff, everyone would, right? Be like, that's because that's outside of our church norm. And, uh, and the rights and wrongs of that, oh man, we'll talk about that down the road. But I just want you to at least get a sense of what would that look like for the religious people to see Matthew and eat with him. It was that sort of like, what in the world is going on? And when we begin this path towards righteousness, we need to understand that Jesus' heart is not just for me. It's not just for you. It's not just for people like us. It's not for people who are moral like us, and we can just see them becoming a little bit more like us and part of our church. It is for the entire world. And we as a church need to be like Matthew and be like, this is our life, and we want the entire world to come and know him. So the deal is all of us are invited to follow. But the deal is it's not just where Jesus calls to follow— it's the how we follow that's the tricky part, right? Because we see um, the very first thing that Matthew does is that he incorporates Jesus into every part of our life. For us, not for us because we're an awesome church and for me, I'm always right. But for those people out there, we have this version of Christianity where we are good Christian people here and then the rest of our lives, we live our lives, right? So for 160 hours of the week, we do good Christian things. And for, 168, for the other 160, there's 168 hours in a week, right? For maybe three of those, we do good Christian things. The rest of them, we do whatever we want. And uh, it's funny because sometimes in church, you go, oh, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you talk like this. But then the very next day, some of us will go out to lunch and be like, hey, do you know that comedian, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I know that comedian, blah, 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 but we really shouldn't talk that because now we're like, we know each other, right? Or uh, do you watch the show or do you not watch the show? But in here, we are, we're all sanctimonious, right? And religious. But out here, outside these walls, we can behave a certain way. And uh, uh, this last winter, I spoke at this camp in Michigan, and I got a ride on a bus for six hours, which wasn't a good call for me, but I rode on the bus for six hours with the high school kids before I get to the camp. And I'm always wondering, like, what are Michigan kids like? You know, I love our kids. You know, we're Marin County kids. I get that, but what are Michigan kids like? And so I'm listening, and I'm trying to, like, be all quiet and have them not realize I'm an adult or a pastor or the speaker, just this kind of, like, quiet person. And I'm listening, and as I'm listening, I'm like, oh, they're just like our kids, you know? They're like, they're texting their boyfriend. One girl just broke up. You know, a couple of kids are like pirating, you know, illegal stuff online. You know, it's just all, it's all happening on the bus. I'm like, oh, they're just like our kids. And, um, and then what happened was, so, so I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. I can speak. I know my kids. I know these kids. We're gonna have a great time. And so I get up to speak and I'm like, and I start speaking to the kids on the bus. And what I didn't realize is that when we come together at church and at camp, the kids on the bus all of a sudden become these different kids. They become special religious kids who, 
raise their hands in worship and who know all the right things and the adults all know the right things. And I'm trying to have conversations about the things that I overheard on the bus. Like, I know you just broke up with your boyfriend. I know you're pirating messed up stuff. Like, let's talk about that. And, and all the, care, the, the, the adults and kids were like, we're not ready to talk about that. We were going to talk about Jesus and coming to know him. And uh, because it's so in us to separate our church world and our real world, but Jesus is with us every second, every day. In the calling of Matthew, we see that Jesus goes with him. Matthew welcomes Jesus. Matthew is aware that Jesus is with him in all things, in everywhere. And, uh, and I think one of the things I love about our student ministry, at least we've kind of landed on this place, like who you are is who you are. Like bring all of who you are to here. Let's work that out. So obviously as you grow in Christ, you also bring that version of Christ with you to where you go. So when we think about where God has called us to follow and how we get there, we need to realize first and foremost that Jesus is actually intimately involved in every aspect of our life, not just in this room, in this moment. So who we are, what we do, the language we, we, uh, we use, the shows that we watch, the, the beverages we drink, whoever we are, Jesus is there with us. And we need to not be there one way and then here another way because it's lousy and it hurts my feelings. Okay. <laughs> It does, and I'm becoming sensitive. Okay, but here's where it gets a little dicey. Um, so the first thing, if, we want, if it's not just the where, but, the how, but how we follow, we realize that we have to incorporate Jesus into all areas of our lives. And as we do that, we realize we cannot escape the reality that Jesus is calling us to be righteous. We strive for righteousness. And what's weird is there's this kind of generational breakdown. Um, if you're my age and older, you get righteousness. You live a certain way. Uh, you, say, you say yes to these things. You say no to these things. And you have this kind of sense of personal righteousness. And when Jesus says you are to be righteous, you live this certain way. And then there's like kind of my age and below who are like, that's dumb. Because they've all grown up seeing all you older people go, I see you righteous at church, but at home you're not righteous. And so that doesn't make sense to us. And so there's this, like, there's this boldness where it's like, I love not being righteous. And we love this story because Jesus goes to Matthew's house where there was awesome booze and alcohol and parties and sinners. And we love that there were sinners there. We love it because Jesus was there. But what's so amazing is Jesus like blows them up too. Because Jesus says, I have come to call, come for the, to call the, I'm sorry, I've come to call the sick, not the healthy. Jesus' worldview is that we are sick. The righteous are sick and the, the, and the, the self-righteous and the unrighteous are sick. So when he, Jesus goes to this party, Jesus has fellowship. He identifies with these people, right? Like, and so it messes us up because we think, how in the world would someone so righteous and perfect like Jesus step back and identify with all of these sinful wretches. And we don't get that. But then some of us who are identified with sinful wretches, we're like, yes, Jesus sees me. He identifies with me as a sinful wretch, and I can just be a sinful wretch. But Jesus, if we read the scriptures, if we're faithful to our calling, we realize that Jesus, even though he identifies with us sinful wretches, the call is towards righteousness. The call is towards holiness. The call is towards purity. Jesus says that you are sick, and the sick need a doctor. And last time I checked, if you went to a party where everyone was boozing it up and having a great time, you're like, you're all sick. They'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm just fine. But Jesus in his world goes, no, you are sick and you are broken people. And as you read scripture, Jesus does never, ever steps back from that. 
He does identify with all people, but he always has this incredibly high call of righteousness. Uh, when people who think they're righteous come to Jesus, like the rich young ruler, he's like, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. Like, you have to give up everything. Every time we think Jesus doesn't care about righteousness, read the Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus' level of expectation in righteousness is overwhelming. It is brutal. And then he says that our righteousness has to be that and above what the Pharisees have, a version of righteousness. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples in the book of 1 Peter, uh, goes back to an Old Testament saying, it says that we are called to be holy because God is holy. And so even though we love, depending on where you stand, we love that Jesus identifies with the wretches or we don't get that Jesus identifies with the wretches, there's this tension where Jesus identifies with all people, wants all people to come and know him. And us, as we come and know him, we must be on this path of righteousness. Jesus wants our entire lives to conform to him, which is a really difficult and challenging thing. And because we're humans, I'm going to always take my path and see the thing I'm working on and striving to fix and look at you who's not striving to fix that yet, and I'm going to be self-righteous about you. I'm going to be like, why aren't you fixing that? I know what my thing is. And a poor Jeff, he had to confront me on this, and I'm such a wreck, I, wretch, I couldn't even deal with it because for me, I have so many sin issues. I have so much stuff going on that I'm not even aware of some sins that's going on. So I brought our entire college group into sin. We watched The Bachelorette. We took brackets. We were like betting on it. It's part of our college group, and uh, we talk about it. It's like, our, it's like the beginning of our college group. What do we do? We, talk, we, ditch, we dish on The Bachelorette, right? And uh, we talk about who and why, and it's great. And is there something redemptive about it? No. Um, and so... Jeff catches my brackets being printed at the church. It's like, Ben, what is this? And uh, I had to hang my head in shame. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's bachelorette brackets. Is that not okay? Because, <laughs> because in my world, I'm striving to know Jesus. Jesus is working on some stuff in me, but my stuff is so messed up. Like, like, he's dealing with this level of stuff, and Jeff's like, you know, he's, he's older than me, so he's been working out longer than me, and so he has d- different level stuff, and he's like, what kind of dumbass is still doing bachelorette stuff for youth group, you know? And I'm like, I don't know. And, uh, and so, but I say that because I am on this path of righteousness trying to figure it out. Jeff is on this path of righteousness to figure it out. Where Jeff starts from and where he's going is different from where I started from and where I'm going. And we need to help each other. We need to sharpen each other to figure this out. But we don't do it in a a self-righteous and crushing way. So the last thing is if we strive for righteousness, the deal is we cannot, we cannot be self-righteous. If you spend any time reading through Scripture, anytime reading through the Gospels, anytime reading through the Psalms, there is only one thing that God seems to really hate. And it is not even sinfulness. It is not wretchedness. It is not even the bachelorette. The one thing that God seems to abhor above all things is self-righteousness. He hates it. He hates when his people use the grace that they've been giving and use it as a club to crush other people. He hates it. And it is such in our temptation, such our DNA, right? We are self-righteous about how we drive and where, and where our, um, our towels go. Those things we're self-righteous about. So it's in us to always be self-righteous about, um, about religion and about our walk with God. And we must not do it. Um, at the end of that passage, uh, Jesus says this. He says, on hearing this, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And what's so awesome is Jesus basically takes his thumb and puts it in the eye of the Pharisees and says, you self-righteous jerks, 
You do not even get what's going on here because that quote is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and all good Pharisees would have had all that memorized. And when Jesus says that, it's brought up the whole story of Hosea again, which is, hey, you may get, do all the right things, but I am not interested in you doing all the right things. Religious people love sacrifice. We love going, give this much, show up this many Sundays, don't say this, put a fish on your car, whatever, you do these things, then you're good. And Jesus never says any of that. And so we don't know where to go, so we make up our own rules. And, and sacrifice was like the religious way of saying, you do this, this, and this, but you've missed it. Hosea chapter 6, exactly word for word, says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And Jesus' heart for us good, self-righteous people is we cannot club other people with our religiosity. Jesus has come to offer mercy. We, as, as Christians, must offer mercy to one another. So... Um, I've thought about this a lot, and I think especially in Marin, in a post-Christian, post-modern, post-everything context, it is more and more difficult to live in this balance. Because Jesus, on one hand, has very clearly called us to be righteous, right? And not just me. He's invited the whole world to come to know him and to be righteous. And uh, let's look at this. I made a little graph, and you can see, uh, Sarah, sorry, my technical abilities are awful, but look at this graph I made. Okay. It's a cross, red, and an arrow. Can you see the arrow all the way in the back? No, that's an arrow, moving towards Christ, okay? So back in the good old days of discipleship, back when we were a good old Judeo-Christian country, we all mostly had the same things. We'd be like living life, and all of a sudden you'd tell your, you know, you go to your friends, hey, you want to come to, to church? Do you want to know about Jesus? And they'd be like, yeah, I'd love to. You're a sinner. Oh, I am? Okay, I'm going to repent. I'm going to follow Jesus. Great. Well, live your life because you're already a good American, and live your life uh, just don't cuss as much and come to church with us and you're good to go. And there's this kind of very clear, right? We were all kind of in the same demographic, at least the people who came to church and that kind of evangelism worked for. We would start here and we would move towards Christ. And no matter where we are on here, the movement is towards Christ. Jesus invites all people to know him and the movement is towards Christ, right? It's towards the cross of Christ. It's towards us picking up our cross daily, dying to ourselves, not our own rights, but we give up our rights so that we can become the righteous and holy people that God's called us for, right? That's the movement we're moving towards. And we do this not out of sacrifice, not out of self-righteousness, but our, our, our attitude is that of mercy. So that means if you're here um, like me, or you're here like Jeff, or you're here like my wife, uh, no matter where you are on this path, right? No matter where you are on that path, we're all moving towards Christ. Our common language is moving towards Christ, submitting to Christ. We don't hold on to my own, our own rights. I don't get to go, I'm watching The Bachelorette, man. I get all the freedom in Christ. That's my deal. No, I go, oh, I got to think about that. And because I got so many other things I'm worrying about, I just got to the bottom of my, my list until I started working on this sermon. So now I got to rethink about that. <laughs> Team Brooks. Okay. So the deal is, that's how it works. That's how it should work and has worked forever in Christendom. And the clear message to us is simply, no matter where we are on this line, we extend mercy, right? We extend mercy towards others, but we're always pointing towards Christ. Are you tracking with me? Okay, that was simple. That was like 50 years ago. Now, this is where we live. Okay. Yeah, you like that little matte color wheel. Okay. So the deal is now, we almost all would find ourselves somewhere on this path before in the good old days, back in Judeo-Christian America. The truth is, 
The world in our country was always more complex than that, but the church never really thought about it because we were full and it was life, life was great. But the, church, the world has always been more complex than that. Now we have a smaller slice of the pie and the world is incredibly more complex. And so now there's this really trippy thing going on. Before, I only had to show mercy for people kind of right here in this kind of, right? It wasn't a big space. It was just a little bit different between me and somebody else. But now, right, there's someone who's just like me who's going to come to know Jesus and it's, they have a very clear path to just follow me, right? But now our, our context is so postmodern. There's going to be people who are going to start here, who are going to start here, who are going to start there. They're going to start all over this color wheel. And now all of a sudden, if, I, if we get that Jesus' invitation is to all people, he steps back and goes, I don't just make space for the good, almost religious people. But Jesus steps back and identifies and says, you know what? This gospel of grace is for everybody, for all people, for people you could never imagine being a part of it. And what happens is when those people that we never imagined come to know Jesus, their path towards Christ is going to look dramatically different than your path towards Christ, than my path towards Christ. The things that they're going to deal with first are not going to be the things that you dealt with first. The things they deal with last might not even be closely to what you think needs to be dealt with. They are going to move towards Christ. And I think for us as a church, if we want to live in this tension of we want all people in all time, in all backgrounds to come and experience the grace of Christ, which is Christ's heart, and I hope is our church's heart, God's going to honor that prayer and they're going to come to know Jesus. And it's going to be awesome. But we are going to crush our brand new sisters and brothers in Christ. If we say, now that you've come to know Christ, you first need to get over here like this, and then move towards Christ. Now, I think the way it works is by simply saying, using language where Jesus invites all of us to know Christ, but our language is that we continually move towards him. We do not need to back down on righteousness. We do not need to back down on holiness. We do not need to back down on discipleship or sanctification. We always are moving towards Christ. And if you're self-righteous in your non-self-righteousness, that's still a form of self-righteous, Right? We all move towards Christ. Every day, Jesus, search me, test me, know me, reveal any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting life. And me, I'm way out here. I'm figuring this stuff out. Other people are having to be way more merciful with me. But God is going to honor our prayers as a church, and there's going to be people from here and here and there who are going to come to know him. And we need to be merciful and gracious for where they are at, for where you are at, and the common language is you are, where you are at is great, but our movement together is towards Christ and it's going to look different. And we actually have to be in true relationship to hear each other's stories because I'll tell you what, this path towards Christ is weird to me. I get it a list, at least because it's near the red zone. I get it a little bit, but I'm not going to get this path towards Christ at all. At all. I'm not going to get it. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to crush them and I'm going to communicate that God's good news is not for them. But we are called to be righteous and not self-righteous. And so may we as a church be like Matthew. Jesus says, follow me. All right, I'm all in. And Jesus invites, I mean, Matthew invites Jesus into every area of his life. And he strives for righteousness and he is not self-righteous in the slightest. For Jesus says, learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And may that be the tenor of our church as we strive with all of our heart to be righteous and holy people, 
This world needs a community of righteous and holy people, but it does not need them to be self-righteous. Amen and amen.